uh, for those that are visiting, I'm going to preach this morning on Philippians chapter 3. We've been looking at Paul's letters to the Philippians, and I'd like to start speaking, uh, well, continue speaking about the new life that we have in Christ. And the title of my message this morning is A New Life of Loss and Gain. A New Life of Loss and Gain. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 to verse 7. So if you find that in your Bibles, I'd like to start with a little movie clip from a movie called Wonder. Has anyone seen this movie? It's an amazing movie, very moving story of this young boy who um, gets born with this extraordinary, rare condition, and during the course of his life, he goes through, I think, 17 or 18 different operations to try and help him to hear, to see, and to kind of live a normal life, all right? And this is the clip um, that we have. First day at school, right? So I would encourage you to see that movie. It's a very, very powerful movie about courage, about friendship, about overcoming things in your, in your life that are difficult. And uh, uh, many of you probably can identify with that thing of dropping your children off at school for the first time and uh, trusting deep in your heart that they're going to cope and do okay. And, and we go through these stages in life. And uh, what I'd really like to speak to you about, using that as a backdrop to what I want to say this morning, is that Paul talks about a new life in Christ. He doesn't just talk about our lives being fixed up. He doesn't talk about God just kind of giving us a couple of operations to help us see a little better or hear a little better. He says that Jesus comes to give us a new life completely. And when we are in Christ, we have a new life completely. And so that's why I've called this message, A New Life of Loss and gain. And we're going to read together, if you've got your Bible on your, uh, on your phone or wherever, can you please read with me Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 3 to verse 7, where Paul says this. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and give glory to Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And so what Paul is saying in this thing of Jesus giving us a new life, he's describing here what an authentic Christian is motivated by and looks like. He says authentic Christianity is really about three things. And if you want to know what being a Christian is, here are three little simple things for you to remember. The first thing, Paul says, that the new life, this new life that I'm speaking about, is found in a Christian who worships by the Spirit of God. That's the first thing that genuine Christians do. They worship by the Spirit of God. Now, what is interesting here is that this verse for this word, the Greek word here for worship, used in verse 3, is also used in other places in the New Testament, like Matthew 4:10 and Luke 7, Luke 1, verse 74. And it sometimes refers to different things. It's a word that is used to describe different things. It can sometimes refer to praying. Uh, so Luke 2.37. It can also, at the same time, not just refer to prayer and what we do on a Sunday, singing together, telling God that we love Him, that we enjoy His company. That, that is worship. That is true. But it also can be used in the sense of Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul says, I appeal to you, my brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so it also refers to this whole sense of our lives 
being given to God and everything about our lives being an act of worship. So we're not just thinking of worship in that narrow sense of prayer and praise and singing and, and telling God that we love Him, but that worship really should pervade every aspect of our lives. So everyone who is saved is saved by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit leads us and helps us to respond with passion towards God. And that's why in Romans 7, Paul talks about the newness of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about. He's saying that when you get saved, something happens on the inside of you. There's a new passion. There's a new motivation that is by the Holy Spirit, and it changes your entire life. And Paul is saying that's the newness of the Spirit in your heart. And so salvation really is a completely Spirit-empowered, entirely new life. And the daily expense of knowing that is promised to every single Christian that believes by faith. It is available to you, and it is unavailable to me. And that's what Paul is saying. And so, if you've been in our church for uh, any period of time, at Forest Town, we use this phrase over and over again, that we are called to walk by the Spirit. And I've been reflecting on that for a couple of weeks. What does that mean, to walk by the Spirit? Well, a walking action is a deliberate thing. It's something you choose to do, you consciously do it, you consciously take direction, and you put one foot in front of the other. And we are called to walk into the Spirit, by the Spirit, into paths, Paul say, the Psalms say, paths of righteousness. And what does that mean? It means that we take a deliberate decision to consciously go in one direction over a period of time, strongly and steadily, to follow what Christ has for our lives. That is to walk by the Spirit. So can I say this to you? You are not carried into a life of godliness or dragged into a life of godliness by anybody else. You have to do it yourself. God does not put you in a wheelchair and push you into a life of godliness. You have to consciously, steadfastly in a, take aim at a certain direction and step by step walk as the Spirit leads you and you hear His voice. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. Do you notice it doesn't say run by the Spirit? Do you notice it doesn't say sprint by the Spirit? It says we are called to walk by the Spirit. And I found the longer I'm alive that Christian life really is about walking. It's about the daily plod. Uh, you know, everyone wants the mountains. Everyone wants revival. And those are good things. But, you know, I've been thinking about this. Over 2,000 years of, of, of church history, there are a handful of revivals in 2,000 years. And most of the rest of the time is Christians loving God, loving their wives, enduring persecution, raising their kids, step by step, moment by moment, walking with God over thousands of years. We get too consumed by things like revival. I trust I will, I will see revival one day. But while, while revival, revival is not here, I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to love my kids. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to do all that I can to step by step, walk by the Spirit, hear His voice. And over the course of my life, people will look back and say, that guy loved God. That's it. That's what we do. We walk by the Spirit. So, I'm trying to say that a Christian is not someone who lives a moral life. A Christian is not just a church-going person. A Christian is not even someone who admires the teaching of Jesus and tries to put that into practice. A Christian is not even someone who's been baptized. 
You can be all of those things. You can have done all of those things and still not be a person that loves Jesus and walks by faith. That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul says. Christians believe by faith and walk by faith, moment by moment, day by day, trusting Jesus with their whole lives and their future. And so a Christian has been some, is someone who's been made into an entirely new person by something that God has done to that person by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they are under a new rulership and a new authority of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And because of that, they know that they have an eternal destiny, and the most important thing for them over the course of their lives is their relationship to Jesus and how that affects everything. They want to talk to Him. They want to have fellowship with Him. They want to hear His voice. They pray by the Holy Spirit to hear day by day what needs to be done, and they are led by the Holy Spirit into what is righteous, what is right. That's why we say over and over again, if you love Jesus with all your heart, you're not going to commit adultery. If you love Jesus with all your heart, you're not going to steal from the tax man. If you love Jesus with all of your heart, you're going to love your wife. Because the Holy Spirit leads you into what is godly and paths of righteousness. Amen. That's what it means to worship by the Spirit. First thing of a genuine Christian, we worship by the Spirit of God, says Paul. Second thing that he gives, he says, Christians glory in Christ Jesus. You notice that? We glory in Christ Jesus. We make much of Jesus. True Christianity makes much of Jesus. And because the Holy Spirit has, has uh, changed our hearts, the Holy Spirit within us also glorifies Jesus and our knowledge of Him. And Paul, uh, John writes in, in John 1.16 and says, Out of the fullness of God, we have received grace upon grace. I love that. John's writing and saying, actually, in Christ, we have all that we need. We receive grace and more and grace, grace upon grace in Christ Jesus. And so in the context of this letter, remember I said to you, Paul has begun to address the Judaizers, Judaizers, those guys that have come into the church and said, you actually need to become a little bit more Jewish to become a Christian. And so you need to become circumcised. You must become a a, 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 a member of the nation of Israel. And what Paul is saying is these men glory in those things. They are not glorying in Christ. They're putting their trust in the fact that they're Israelites. They're putting their trust in the fact that they are Jewish by nationality. They've been circumcised. And Paul is trying to say that's got nothing to do with salvation. You glory in Christ Jesus. All that he's done. And so a Christian is someone who's been taught by God not in any way to depend on themselves. And this is why our culture finds it so hard to, to understand what Christians truly believe. Because our, our culture says, depend on yourself. Depend on your gifts, your education to get a get. Depend on yourself. And Paul says, no, don't depend on any of that. Depend entirely on Jesus. Make much of Jesus in your life. Glory in Christ. That's what it's authentic Christians do. And so that's Paul. Paul is saying, don't glory in those things, glory in Christ Jesus. He, he goes on to boast, we'll see now in the following verses, verse 4 to 7, that, that, that he was a law-abiding Jew in every way, but he'd begun to understand that someone who lives by those things is not a Christian at all. And so these Judaizers tried to find God in this 
nationalistic, legalistic righteousness in a heavy kind of way. But Paul's point is, you don't know God. <laughs> you don't know God. It's your own righteousness that you're depending on. The fact that you obey the rules and you are morally upright and you go to church and you do all that stuff, you're depending on that and saying that makes you acceptable to God. Paul's saying exactly the opposite. None of that makes you acceptable to God. What makes you acceptable to God is that you believe by faith, that you love Jesus, you walk by the Spirit. That what it, that's what he loves. And so in a real sense, these people were depending on morality, not spirituality. So it was possible to steal and lie or not to commit adultery, but it didn't mean that they had, didn't mean that they had faith. It was like a play-acting righteousness, doing all the right things on the outside, but the heart is far from God. That's what Paul is saying. And so I put it to you that... Um, these Judaizers, Judaizers rejected Jesus because they had more faith in their own religious customs and traditions than they did in their own self-sufficiency, but they never wholly looked to Jesus. And so religious people today still do things in roughly the same way. They have their own version of morality. They have their own principles that they live by. And they might even be very zealous for certain customs and certain traditions that they do. And they get proud in their own righteousness. I'm doing the right thing. But it totally fails because Paul says it doesn't produce any knowledge of God. And so a Christian says and realizes that we are to glory in Jesus alone and knows that everyone who glories in Jesus will never be put to shame. That's the great promise of the Scripture. Why? Because it's Jesus who forgives. It's Jesus who releases us from our past. So many people captive to their past. Can I say to you, if you're in Christ, if you're, you love Him with all of your heart, you're believing by faith, you are free from every mistake you've ever made. Come on now. That's good news. You are free from everything that you wish you had never done. Helen and I sometimes talk about some of the things that we wish we had never said. <laughs> I wish I'd never said that. You know what? I'm free in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's taken, he's forgiven, he's washed away my past. And we sang it this morning. Even in the storm, we can sing. Why? Because we know that he is working all things together for good for those that love him. It's Jesus who gives us life, joy, peace. It's Jesus who changes our character. He's making us more like himself, kinder, more gentle, more self-controlled. It's Jesus who leads us into our inheritance in this life and the life eternal. It is all about Jesus. Do you glory in Jesus in your life? I'm not here to accuse you. I'm here to encourage you. Do you glory in Jesus? Jesus is rich in mercy. Jesus is full of forgiving grace. He is more than enough to lift you out of whatever pit you might feel you're in and to lift you into spirituality and godliness, which is found in himself. He's more than able. Jesus has everything within himself, all the treasures of heaven, all the treasures of the divine nature. He's rich in sympathy. He is rich in mercy. He's rich in provision. He's rich in all things that you need to live a godly life. Will you glory in him? That's Paul's encouragement. There's abundance of love and mercy and grace in Jesus. Abundance of provision. In him is all the fullness 
of Christ. And we come to life in Christ. That's what the whole gospel story says, is that you once were dead, but now you are alive. You thought you were alive. You weren't even alive yet until Christ came into your heart and regenerated you and gave you a new heart. And now you are alive. You've come to life in Christ. And the same richness, the same fullness that is available to everybody, to a proud first century Jew like Paul, and to the Gentile dogs that he speaks about, the outcasts, the ones who were outside of the nation of Israel, the same rich grace is available to them, and to you, and to me. Same rich grace, same Lord Jesus abounds in riches to all who call on Him. Here's the point. You must call on Him. You must have your heart set towards Him. You must determine that you're going to walk steadfastly into His life, the life that He has for you as you obey the Spirit. So really, what I'm trying to say is a Christian is a person who's experienced all of this wealth of grace in Christ Jesus. And they're not living on their nationality. They're not living on some special uh, culture, Jewish or otherwise. They are depending, not depending on how morally upright they are. They are simply living in Christ and glorying in Christ Jesus. A Christian is someone who worships by the Spirit of God, who glories in Christ Jesus. And the third thing Paul says, no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. What, what, what does he mean? And, and really, he's, he, in verse 4 to 7, he is taking that point and he's, he's extrapolating a little bit. He's explaining what he means. And so let's read verse 4. He says, Though I have much reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So now he's giving you all the advantages that people look to. To think that it makes them spiritual. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of God, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. We'll look at all of these things. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain, whatever advantage I had, I count it loss. I count it dung. I count it expletive. That's what he's saying. That's literally the word there. It's very polite in the English. Now, I count it dung, says Paul, for the sake of knowing Christ. All the advantages that people say you need. I had all those advantages, and I consider them all done for the sake of knowing Jesus. And so he, in a real sense, is clarifying what he means by pointing to himself. More than anyone else, Paul had put his confidence in what he could do, and he said, I had put my confidence in the flesh in the hope that I, it would bring me God's salvation, and then he comes to this point of realizing that it doesn't. And that's why he says in verse 3, we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And what, he, what he means by the flesh here is that anything that arises from your human nature that you were born with, all those advantages that we are born with, the way we look, our intellect, our upbringing, our, uh, we don't have anything to do with those things, but those are all advantages to us. Paul says those things in terms of 
salvation are useless. They do nothing to bring the power of God into your life. What brings the power of God into your life is faith in Christ Jesus plus nothing. So let's think about some of the advantages. He says, first of all, verse 4, that he came from a very religious family. You would think that's an advantage, coming from a religious family, isn't it? How many of you um, think, have met people that think they, are, they have some kind of advantage because they were, you know, I was born into a Christian family. I grew up in a Christian home. Ever heard that kind of language? Perhaps you were born into a pagan family. Well, that's also okay. But people sometimes use this as, you know, I, I was baptized as a baby. I was brought up as a Christian from a young age, thinking that that actually gives you an advantage. That gives you no advantage at all. Nothing. Paul says, means nothing in terms of salvation. He, he says, I came from a very religious fa family. I grew up in an African context, which uh, many countries in Africa claim to be Christian countries. <laughs> I find that funny. I grew up in a Christian country. Our, Christ, our, our, our nation is a Christian nation. And that's said as if it means that anyone born after that statement is automatically a Christian. <laughs> like you were born into a Christian nation. Paul says, nothing, no advantage being born into a Christian nation, so-called. No advantage being born into a family that claims to be Christian, so-called. If there ever was a nation that would give you an advantage, it would be the nation of Israel, wouldn't it be? The people of God. Paul says, I, was, I belong to the people of God. I belong to that nation. No advantage in that. Some people tend to think that they might have salvation because of a particular group that they belong to, a particular tribe which they are part of. See, you notice Paul mentions two tribes there, Judah and Benjamin. Why do you think he does that? Because out of the 12 tribes of Israel, if you look at the Old Testament, the ones that were most obedient to the will of God for all of the people of Israel were two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The two smallest tribes were the most loyal to the Old Testament and what God had called them to do. Paul says, I was part of the favored tribe, Benjamin. He's making it even more kind of um, special. Part of the people of God, yes, but I was part of the, the most loyal people of God from the tribe of, of Benjamin. You might think, well, we don't have tribes today. We don't have groups that we depend on. I want to say to you, we do. Can I give you some tribes that are in our culture? There's the rich tribe. They're the wealthy ones. If only I have enough money, it will be okay. Because all the rich people don't have problems. I want to be part of the rich tribe. Yeah? Oh, I want to be part of the middle class tribe. Because I know there's certain advantages being part of the middle class tribe. Let's face it. Get to go to better schools. All these things. Working class tribe. I'm not so interested in that, right? Or the Russell University tribe. If I can get to go to a good university or the Oxbridge tribe, if I can get to go to Cambridge, I'm going to have real advantages in life. Well, that might be true in the world. You might get certain advantages from being rich or going to a good school, a good university, but I want to say they count for nothing when it comes to salvation and following Jesus. For some people... They think they have some advantage in the language that they speak or the accent which they speak. You know, some, some accents are more desirable than others. Did you know that? 
<laughs> I learned this early when we were here for only a couple of years. We were on the train up to Liverpool, and there was a young guy that we were chatting to. He was sitting opposite us, really cool guy, and he was a scouser. And so when he spoke to us, he spoke with a Liverpool accent. And then someone from work phoned him, and his accent instantly changed to this kind of BBC kind of English accent. And I was like, what's going on? So I asked him, and he said, I come from Liverpool. I grew up in Liverpool, and I came down to make a career for myself in London. And he said this, when I, I realized instantly that if I spoke with a Scouser accent, no one would take me seriously in London. So I learned to speak with the right accent. Some accents count more than others if you're trying to do business in London. So what does Paul say? He says, I spoke with the right accent. I had the best possible advantage of all of you. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I spoke with the right accent. No advantage in that. <laughs> Some of, perhaps we think we have an advantage because of our religious domination. You know, I'm a member of the Church of England. I'm a member of the Pentecostal Church. I'm a member of whatever church. You know what Paul says? Doesn't give you any advantage in coming to faith in Christ Jesus. It means nothing. Why do I say that? Because he says it. In the matter of the law, I was a Pharisee. I was the most loyal person to the Mosaic law. I was the most religious, law-abiding, religious person that you could ever find, says Paul. And I've come to discover that when it comes to salvation, it means nothing. Some people think they might have an advantage because of their temperament, how they are, wired. What does Paul say? He says, I was zealous. He's a passionate guy. Zealous for what? For persecuting the church because I was under religious bondage. And then, perhaps this is the biggest one that we face in our culture. Some people think they have an advantage because of their morality. I'm a good person. <laughs> I haven't hurt anyone. I'll accept everyone. I'm a good person. Ah, don't tell me I need salvation. I'm a good person. What does Paul say? He says, under the law, under following the rules of being a good person, I was blameless. No one could find fault with me. And you know what? That didn't help at all in salvation. Didn't contribute one iota. Not one jot, not one tittle, not one comma. Didn't matter. So that's why I called this message, this new life of loss and gain. So those are all the advantages Paul says he has that count for nothing but knowing Jesus by faith. And now he says this amazing thing. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. You see, the Christian life is about loss and gain. You lose some things and you gain infinitely more in Christ. And so he's saying that he realized 
that he needed an entirely new heart, entirely new outlook, entirely new mentality, and that's why he uses this phrase. And he says that deliberately because there are still people that get really excited. He's saying that because there are people that still put their confidence in what they think the, the advantages that they have, their education, their nationality, their wealth. Paul's learned, he says, none of those count for anything. That's why I don't put any confidence in that. And so, whatever we think our religious credentials are, and they don't gain any kind of place in God's kingdom. Rather, Paul says to us here that those things actually hinder us coming into the kingdom of God. We can't put any faith, any trust in external things like circumcision, nationality, our tribe, our denomination, our language, our temperament, our morality, nothing. I mean, how many times haven't you heard people say, Surely living a good life will bring you into the kingdom of God. Surely that's enough. Just love people and live a good life. Paul says, no, I've learned to give up on all those things for the sake of knowing the one who brings life, and his name is Jesus. That's what Paul says. So let's consider what he gained, and I'll finish with this. When Paul st st learned to stop trusting in the advantages that some people thought they, they might have, he gained infinitely more. He gained Christ. Jesus became his Savior. Jesus became his forgiver. Jesus became his friend. In fact, all the things that he lists there, I can't do it now for the sake of time, but I'll mention a couple of things. All those things that he supposedly lost, he gets back in Jesus. He does. He gets all of them back. Christ becomes his circumcision. Remember, we studied Galatians 2.11. What does Galatians 2.11 speak about? It talks about the circumcision made, not with human hands, the circumcision of Christ. We studied it a couple of months ago. There, Paul writes and says, no, there's a new circumcision. This hardness in your heart, this kind of a lack of being able to respond to God, that is cut away. Ezekiel prophesied about many, many generations ago. God will give you a new heart. He'll cut away the callous of your heart so that your heart no longer is hard. It's soft, and you can know Him, and you can enjoy Him and have a relationship with Him. Circumcision, not physically. Not skin cut away, no, but a circumcision of the heart where your heart becomes soft and open and pliable and the Spirit of God speaks to you and you hear Him and you can lead others into paths of righteousness because Christ is within you. New circumcision. Don't need the old one. <laughs> All the men say, yes, amen. Come on, guys, that was a joke, right? Christ became his circumcision. Christ, did I tell you the story? I've got to tell you the story. One of the first times I preached at the old church that I was on the leadership of in a place called Bryanston, we had a number of deaf people in the church. And there would always be an, an, an interpreter on the stage, interpreting what the, with sign language what the, the, the uh, preacher was saying. So I was preaching about the Abrahamic covenant and circumcision. And the girl who was, who was um, doing the sign language, <laughs> it was the first time she was doing it. And I didn't realize it. So I said, circumcision. And I looked to her, and she was going, <laughs> putting a circle around her figure. And like, oh. <laughs> anyway, it was very, very funny. We all laughed. <laughs> right. 
So Christ becomes Paul's circumcision. Christ gives Paul a new nationality. He gains in Christ a whole new nationality. He becomes a member of a new kingdom. Jesus becomes his denomination. <laughs> what denomination did Paul belong to? What tribe did Paul belong to? He belonged to Jesus' people. He belonged to the Jesus tribe. That's who he belonged to. And so, my friends, for all of you, there are many cultures here. We are primarily, first of all, members of the kingdom of God. And then we are English and Scottish and Irish and South African and Bolivian and whatever you are, secondary. First of all, I'm primarily a member of God's family. Along with every Christian anywhere in the planet, I am a Jesus person first. And my nationality, the accent I speak with, way down the line, infinitely down the line, what's much more important is that I belong to Jesus. That's what Christians believe. So, for Paul, he gets a whole new nationality. Jesus becomes his wisdom, his righteous status before God. Jesus is the one who gives him the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, he is seated at the right hand of God in he heavenly places. He, st he stopped relying on his earthly advantages, and he gains Christ. And so I say to you this morning, before we ever experience God's blessings, Jesus has to turn us around. Help us to stop trusting in the things that we used to trust in and trust exclusively in Him. And as we start to trust exclusively in Him, we begin to see things that we've never seen before, we never dreamed were possible before, and our whole life is transformed. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It means a complete change of outlook. Everything that the world admires so much, we must remind ourselves, gives us no advantages with God. What he loves are obedient, cheerful people living by faith, trusting, singing in the storm. That's what he loves. That's what he has most pleasure in. So that's what the Judaizers had to learn, and that's what all of us need to remind ourselves day by day. Salvation comes from trusting in Jesus plus nothing. Living by the Spirit comes from Trusting in the Holy Spirit plus nothing. Just Jesus, just the Holy Spirit, just hearing His voice, and He will lead you into paths of what is righteousness and truth. Amen? I trust you're encouraged. And what we'd like to do this morning is just to finish by breaking bread. And maybe you can reflect on some of these things that I've said this morning. That actually, in the, in, in, in the, uh, I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago. In the breaking of bread, what we are actually saying is that we're putting all of our trust in the blood of Christ. We're putting all of our trust in the broken body of Christ and saying it is enough. That's what we're doing. So let's pray, and then we're going to break bread together. Jesus, I want to thank you that on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread after supper and you broke it. And you said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, you took the cup. And you said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Eat and drink in memory of me. And every time we do that, Lord, we remind ourselves of our complete dependence on you. Our complete dependence on you, Lord Jesus, for salvation. Our complete dependence on you. Holy Spirit, to walk into what is true and what is right and what is noble and what is pure. 
And we ask this morning, Lord, that you'd help us. You'd help us when we're feeling weak. That we'd know that when we are weak, your strength in us is most powerful. That your spirit in us works powerfully when we get out of the way and we let you to do what you want to do in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray as we eat and drink this morning that we would be encouraged. Remind ourselves, Lord, of our need for forgiveness, that there's so many things we've done that have hurt other people. Even this week, Lord, we've said stupid things and hurt others, and we pray that you forgive us. And thank you, Lord, that your word says that as we just bring these things to you prayerfully, you are faithful to forgive, and you wash away our sin. What was scarlet becomes white. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. We, we trust in that, Lord, by faith this morning. And we want to thank you for your blessings in our lives. Help us to be people of faith, not trusting in any earthly advantages, but purely loving Jesus, glorying in Christ, worshiping by the Spirit, and having no confidence in ourselves, but all confidence in Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.